Hey, we're continuing in a series um, that we're simply calling Dinner Parties. Now, let me remind you about this series and, and kind of give some, uh, a little bit of context as we move forward. The whole idea of Dinner Parties is, is we're looking at not all of, but some of the ten instances in the book of Luke alone where we see Jesus have a meal with somebody. Uh, just think about that, that reality, that there are ten times in, in this that Luke is emphasizing the fact that Jesus has a meal. Now, last week when we started the series, we did emphasize the meal itself a lot more prominently within the sermon. Now, some weeks we will uh, continue to emphasize that, but this is a week where we're not going to emphasize the meal as much, but we're just simply using it as this underlying theme that helped us select the passage to begin with, because we're not doing an exhaustive study through Luke, but we are taking these topical ideas and really, even if the main point of the text isn't the meal itself, like the text for this week, that's the, that's the case where we're not going to actually talk about the meal, there's still an intentional point I want to communicate through this series, is that this conversation that is the main point and the truth that Jesus communicates in this conversation, which is the main point of the text, happened over a meal. And so if nothing else, the takeaway from this idea within the series as this underlying theme with meals is that it's when we have meals with others, or better yet, just simply when we talk with people, which often happens over meals, when we slow down life long enough, when we grab coffee or we grab breakfast, lunch, or dinner, when we invite someone into our home, we're able to have conversations that go past superficiality. You're, you have more time where you're kneecap to kneecap with somebody, facing them, having a conversation, and you can get past... Uh, not the, uh, it's not a bad thing, but just the basic cordial, hey, how are you? Good, good, and the weather great? Yeah, the weather's great. How's your weekend? Basically, the conversation we just had when I got up to preach, which, let's be honest, is, is, a, is a very nice, polite, cordial thing, but it, you don't get past that to get into people's lives unless you're willing to slow down. And so it's in moments where Jesus is having a meal where we see the richness of conversations take place, and we learn so much about um, just Christ and really honestly about ourselves. And so in Luke chapter 7, we see the second instance, and I'm going to read the passage from verse 36 all the way to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. Now Paul's um, if you remember the story from last week, it's literally the opposite setting of the story this week. So last week, there's a story where Jesus went and ate with tax collectors and sinners, and Pharisees were kind of the bystanders in the meal, and this week it's the reverse. This week, he's having the meal at the Pharisee's house, and we're going to see uh, what Scripture is going to call in a second a sinful woman as the bystander. Now, you may be asking the question that I asked when I saw this was, how are these people who weren't originally a part of the meal showing up at the meal? Or do they just, just walk in the house? Like, like, how's this working, right? And so uh, that question led me to try to find that answer. And one of the things that I've learned that I didn't know prior to this was just uh, uh, finding scholars who would explain kind of the setting and what it was like. And it was a very common thing. Think of this meal more uh, like a barbecue or a neighborhood party where it was very common, especially for religious leaders, 
to have meals in almost in an open setting to the community because it's often at meals where you get together and you might have uh, theological conversations. And Jesus being a guest in the town who likely had taught at the synagogue, he's a, he's a traveling preacher, if you will. He was invited to the house of the local pastor or the local synagogue where, uh, where Jesus may have been speaking and teaching. And so it was just a basic hospitality. Hey, you come over to my house, and it's in those settings where they may have theological conversations, they may just talk about culture, and people are welcome to be a part of it. Not doesn't necessarily mean that they're eating, but they're welcome to kind of be in the yard, if you will, listening to the conversation. This is how discipleship would take place. And so it wasn't that uncommon for these people who weren't originally invited to the party to be at the party and engaged. And so um, we see the opposite. Instead of last week, Jesus at tax collectors and sinners' house with the Pharisees looking in. Now he's at the Pharisees' house, and he is. we have different bystanders looking in. Uh, another truth, just to think about that, here, here we see a beautiful picture of Jesus. Both instances, he didn't initiate, but he, as he was invited in, comes in and is a part of people's lives, and that he steps in and just shows that love and care doesn't matter who or what their situation may be. And so Jesus, invited to the home of the Pharisee, went in and was reclined at the table. Verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, maybe under his breath or just kind of in his, in his mind, but he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Any of y'all ever had that moment where your mama comes to you and goes, says your name and says, we need to talk or I've got something to say. It's just one of those moments you're like, uh-oh, right? And Simon says, say it, teacher. Now it's important. He says, say it, teacher. And Jesus says to him in verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, denarii one day's wages, so 500 days of wages, and the other 50 denarii. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. And then he asked this question, now which of them will love him more? Now, we need to know something. Love is an interesting word here. Why not? Who would be grateful more? Who will be most appreciative why love? Um, let's, let's understand that in the Hebrew language, um, there was not a word for gratitude. So love was that word. And so it's a picture of gratitude. So now, when you, now once again, this is not Hebrew, this is Greek, and probably spoken Aramaic, which is closely linked to Hebrew. There, there wasn't a word for gratitude. So let's not take this too far. And yes, it does carry a connotation of love, but it more likely just sends this idea, who's going to be most grateful? Who's going to be the most affectionate to this person? And so he asked Simon the question, and Simon answers, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to them, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, so he turns and looks at the woman, but then he says to Simon the Pharisee, 
Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but, she, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You have a handout, just two basic truths. There are really two questions that we're asking the passage. And the first question is this, who is Jesus? Now, I'm getting that question specifically from the context, not only of of this story, but of the surrounding story. So let's start with just the story. Our passage ends with this in verse 49. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Now, let me tell you a little bit about Luke so we can just kind of get this idea. It's true for not just Luke, because this is the gospel we're reading, but it's true for us when we write or speak. We always have a purpose for why we write. So if you are writing uh, a letter to a friend, you have a purpose for writing, whether it's to say thank you, whether it's to say I'm praying for you, whether it's to say I hope you're getting well or better soon if they're sick, or, or if you're, you, you have a reason for writing, yes? Well, the same is true for the gospel. same is true for every letter and every book within the whole of the Bible. Well, Luke is writing, we see from Luke chapter 1, he's writing to one person. I want you all to think about this. Luke, the person Luke, wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Okay? I want us to get something. That a third of the New Testament, over a third of the New Testament, which is based off words, was written to one person. Right? And so Luke writes the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to one person. Now, scholars would say, and there's reasons for this, I'm not getting into but the scholars would say that, that Luke was writing to someone who was not yet a Christian when he wrote the book of Luke. When he wrote the gospel of Luke, someone who was not yet a follower of Christ, and the purpose of writing was to communicate who Jesus was to him. Now, when you go to Acts, scholars would say, now he wrote Acts as a form of discipleship because the person had then went and put their faith in Christ. Now, the reasons they can say that there's a difference between that and the person has to do with how he intros the book. Not important, but the point is, it is clear that he is writing the gospel of Luke to Theopolis to communicate to him who Jesus is. To answer this question, who is Jesus? Right before this story, uh, remember, we're reading this story. Right before our story, we see this question asked explicitly again. We see John the Baptist send messengers to Jesus in Luke chapter 7, verse 20. It says this, And when the men who had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What is it? It's a question of identity. When Theopolis is is reading this gospel, and as for us, when we are reading this gospel, that, uh, uh, excuse me, Luke is writing not just the gospel itself as a whole, but individual stories to make an argument. And what he's doing in chapter 7, all throughout chapter 7 specifically, is raising the question, who is Jesus, and then allowing Jesus to answer the question. 
So for us tonight, the main point of this text, if we're going to be faithful to the text, pull it apart and try to understand why did Luke write this and what is the Holy Spirit trying to communicate to us, we've got to ask the question, who is Jesus? Now, let's do what Luke has done and let's look at the characters because he uses the different characters to answer this question. So the Pharisees, let's start with them. Who did the Pharisees say that Jesus was? Or specifically, the Pharisee, Simon, in this story. Now, he invited Jesus into his house. Now, he probably did not invite Jesus into his house because he believed Jesus to be the Messiah. There's no sign to say that. He invited Jesus into his house with the question, is he even a prophet? Now, we know that he didn't... Uh, uh, invite him, when he invited him into the house, he did not show Jesus great honor. How do we know that he didn't show Jesus great honor? Because it says, when in verse 44 and following, when he's describing the woman, he says this, you, do you see this woman? I entered your house, but you, uh, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now, we, we read that and go, is it a big deal that you give water for your feet? Let's think of it this way. When I'm living down south, one of the things about living down south that's different from up here is people don't take off their shoes when you go into someone's house. They don't. You go into, think about it. You go into someone's house and you don't take off your shoes. When we were back uh, on vacation a, a little over a month ago in Memphis, we walk in and our kids just stop and take off their shoes and they have never done that before. And no one else in the house has their shoes off, but everybody, uh, but our kids were taking shoes off. Now, when you come up here, everybody takes their shoes off. And for me, when we first moved here, I was like, okay, this is just a cultural thing in general. But then, I, then winter, then winter came. And, 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 and snow came. And then there was salt everywhere. And I said, I get it. If people don't take their shoes off because they're so dirty and so messy, that we'd be cleaning floors every single day, you're right? That we would just be constantly washing floors, where in the, in the south, that's not as much because you don't have the snow, you don't have the salt. It rains a little bit, but we don't really walk anywhere, and so we get in a car, drive into our garage and get out, and our shoes never touch the ground, and so they're really not all that dirty, and it's a true story. And so, so what's different is our shoes just aren't as dirty in that sense. And so, but up here, it's, it's a necessity. Now, imagine... That being the case, but you couldn't take your shoes off. Because if, even if you were wearing shoes, you are probably wearing some sandals. Imagine it being dusty, probably not snowy with salt where in this setting, but imagine it being wet and dusty. And so imagine you come into a house where you've been wearing sandals. You might be able to take the sandals off, but you still got dirt all over your feet. And so it's common respect to offer the, and have the servants of the house to clean your guest's feet. Feet. Not just so it doesn't track all over your house, but just out of respect for them. The guy doesn't do this for Jesus. Doesn't wash his feet. Doesn't show him that respect. Now, he doesn't have to. Uh, but however, it would have shown him great honor. So it wasn't necessarily disrespectful um, culturally to have not done it. But it, if you wanted to show honor, you would have done it. And he didn't. You gave me no kiss. This is just a... a uh, very much just a cordial welcome kiss when I, uh, when I visit uh, South American countries, especially there's that cultural kiss many of you know about. I didn't grow up with that, but other cultures have that same idea. It's just a cultural kiss of respect uh, to one another. You gave me no kiss, but, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet 
with ointment. Once again, just a sign of honor and respect to anoint uh, your guest, especially a religious leader, with this ointment to, rec- to represent their anointing of God and their honor due. He did none of these things. The Pharisee Simon did none of these things. So he likely invited Jesus into his house out of curiosity, maybe even out of challenge, because he's asking the question, is this guy really all that special? Is he really all that important? I've been hearing about him. I've been hearing about what's going on. I'm here to check him out because he's around, so I invite him into my house because other people, he's kind of the famous cool person. You know, he's uh, who, who, who just got famous in social media or something and maybe cool. And so maybe he's the new person that everybody's talking about. And so he's like, oh, let me invite Jesus in. And, but he doesn't really show him a lot of honor. And so the Pharisee, when this woman who is, she said she was of the city, not from the city, very different language, but of the city, which is an uh, idiomatic phrase to say that she was a prostitute. So a prostitute who is a sinner has come in and begins to show honor to Jesus. And the Pharisee, Simon says, aha, I got it. Now I really know who Jesus is. Because a prophet would never let someone so disgraceful come this close to him. Why? Because this person who is this disgraceful would bring her uncleanliness onto the prophet, and a prophet would never let that happen. So, he's, so if he was a prophet, he would never do that. And if he were a prophet, he would know who she is, he would know her sin, he would have the ability to know this information, and he would never let her draw close. And so, saying this to himself, Jesus responds by saying, I've got something to say to you. Now listen to what Simon says. He said, say it, teacher. He answers and shows for himself who he believes Jesus to be. Not the Messiah. He's not even a prophet. He's just a teacher. No one special. No one important. He is just a teacher. So the Pharisee answers the question, he's a teacher. Now, let's look at the woman. Who does the woman? Now, she never gives an answer with her words, but she does with her actions. She showed honor. Not to read the passage Uh, again, but in all the places where the Pharisee did not show honor, she showed honor. She washed his feet, she kissed him, and she anointed him. She did all the things to represent and show honor. But then the story ends in verse 50, and he said to the woman, Jesus, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She responded to him completely different. We're going to talk about in a second why. But the question, who is Jesus. Now, once again, Paul, or excuse me, not Paul, Luke is writing this to convince the one person he's writing this to who is Jesus, to convince him of this. So for us to read this passage faithfully, we must ask ourselves this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Now, for those who are in the room who may not be a a follower of Jesus, and you may just be uh, similar to the Pharisee, and I've kind of intentionally spoken somewhat negatively and shown my emotions about the Pharisee. Please don't display those emotions to you, but you may be like the Pharisee who is still trying to ask this question, who is this Jesus? And you may be exploring and you may just be going, hey, is he really the Messiah? Is he really the King of Kings? Or is he just a prophet? See, there's other religions who don't worship Christ as God and don't worship him as King who would just say he's a prophet, right? right? He's not God, but he, he is a prophet. Or maybe you 
maybe in here, and you may be going, I don't even think, I don't think he's really much of a prophet. I think he was just a really good teacher that was really nice and that, and that the world could benefit from his teachings. Who is he to you? Because who he is to you affects everything. And Luke, as he is writing this, is provoking the question, who is Jesus? And you and I are forced to give an answer. You and I are forced to give an answer. But let me be careful with this to say, your answer does not necessarily mean he is who you think he is. Meaning, Jesus is who he is, whether you and I see him to be who he is or not. Truth number two, and this I will defend what I just said with truth number two, with this question, who am I? Now, I want to read to you, if you will, um, verse 40 through 43. And it says this, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. So two people who owed him money. One owed him 500 denarii, which is about a year and a half's wages. And the other owed him 50 denarii, which is about two months' wages. When they could not pay... He forgave both of them. He canceled both of their debts. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Let's think about this parable. Let's think about this story, this illustration that it gives. We get this, right? If I owe uh, a debt, let's say, let's just take this scenario. I've got two credit cards, and let's say on one credit card, it would, if I took one or two months' wages and I just took everything I made in two months to pay it off, or if I took everything I made in a year and a half to pay off the second one, and they both came to me and said, you know what, we're just going to forgive your debt. Well, I'm really grateful for the year and a half, way much more than just the two months. Easy. I mean, this is easy for us to get, right? We would be much more grateful. We'd be much more appreciative of the lender who forgave the larger debt. Why? Because it's, it's more costly for us. It's, it's more difficult for us. It causes more sacrifice for us. And this is all something that has been given back to us. Now, what I want to draw your attention about this is the difference from how we often may read this passage and what I believe Jesus is trying to point out with the question of who is Jesus by forcing us to ask the question, who am I, is in his story, there was only one moneylender but two different debtors. Obviously, but why is this important? Because it's not that we're looking at two different people who forgave debt. The moneylender hasn't changed. The money lender is the constant in the story. The difference is who owes how much money. The response to love and gratitude towards the money lender has not as much to do about who the money lender is, but about who the person who owes debt sees themselves to be. His point is, Jesus is making, is the Pharisee feels that he doesn't have that much that needs forgiven, but this sinful woman, a woman of the city, understands and sees her the gravity of her sin, but she sees herself for who she is in her sin and therefore is more grateful. The difference is not the who Jesus is to necessarily in general, but it's who Jesus is to them and who they see themselves to be. So let me ask you this question. Who are you in the story? Are you either the Pharisee or the sinful woman. 
See, because it's real easy for us to read this passage and ask this question, well, who is Jesus? Well, who is Jesus to me? But would you be willing to answer the question honestly? Do you see yourself as the Pharisee or do you see yourself as the sinful woman? Well, let's, let's think about this, be honest, because the right answer is that we should see ourselves as the sinful woman. Why? Because she's the one who's shown grace. That the Pharisee who recognized, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I really don't have all that big of a debt, as opposed to the sinful woman who sees herself for who she really is, Jesus shows grace to her, shows mercy to her. Well, if I want grace and mercy, then i got to honestly see myself as the sinful woman. But I, what I'm trying to say to you is oftentimes my heart says I'm more like the Pharisee. Because here's why. The Pharisee was looking at the debt from the Pharisee's perspective, not from God's perspective. See, the Pharisee was looking at the situation and says, look, I'm a religious leader, I'm theologically trained, I do everything right, I do all these rules right, I do all these things that the Old Testament is telling me to do. This woman is a prostitute, a sinful woman, who is just full of uncleanliness and sin. Um, praise God, I'm not like her. Uh, Jesus, is, get this, her complaint, or excuse me, the Pharisee's complaint to Jesus was that she was unworthy to be around Jesus. But the very fact that the Pharisee had invited Jesus into his home says, I'm worthy to have Jesus in my house. See, see what he's doing there? He's, he's placing himself in a prideful position in who am I? I am worthy to answer the question, who is Jesus? See, see what happens is the Pharisee came into the story with a subjective mindset that says who I say Jesus is is determining who he is because I'm worthy to answer that question. Where the woman said nothing, came in with nothing but honor, humility, by saying, I know who I am, and I am unworthy to be in front of Jesus. See, it's not as much about who Jesus is. Now, Jesus is very important, but it's answering the question, who am I in light of who Jesus is? The, the Pharisee said, I'm worthy to have Jesus in my home, and I'm worthy to judge that Jesus is just a teacher. He's not even a prophet. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a position of pride. It's a position of arrogance. Because, but it's a position that starts with answering the question, who am I first? You see, he, he answered the question, who am I first, to then put judgment on who Jesus is, where the woman did the exact same thing and said, who am I? I am unworthy. And she approached Jesus with grace and humility. Listen to me. If we don't see Jesus for who he really is, then we'll never see ourselves for who we really are. The Pharisee never saw Jesus for who he really was. He answered the question, well, he's just a teacher, not a prophet, not the Messiah, just a teacher. Where, although we don't have the words from the woman, she clearly recognized him as someone who, was, who at least she was unworthy to be in the presence of. Now, the text doesn't tell us that she, from the get-go, believed he was the Messiah. But from the fact that Jesus shows forgiveness of sin, clearly shows that she put her faith and trust in Jesus. Because it's through faith and trust in Jesus that our sins are forgiven. And he even says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Who is Jesus, rightfully seeing Jesus for who he is, will help you and I see right for who we are to him. Now listen to me. Our hearts will say we're the Pharisee. 
But if we accurately see Jesus as this holy and loving God, then we should rightfully answer the question, who am I? I am the sinful woman. Here's the paradox of this parable that I think Jesus was trying to get to the Pharisee, get the Pharisee to see and understand, is that the debt between the Pharisee and the sinful woman was actually not that, not that different at all. But the perspective of thinking it was different was what he was highlighting. See, you think, Pharisee, Simon, that you don't have that big of a debt, where this woman clearly sees the debt. But the truth is, as we look at Scripture, if we rightfully see who Christ is, then we'll rightfully see who we are, and we'll see that our debt is no different. Charles earlier, during our time of worship, rightfully so, pointed out uh, different aspects of disunity, is a very nice way to put it, of inequality, aspects of prejudice, and all of those are rooted in answering the question, who am I? And the answer says, I'm the Pharisee, you're the sinful woman. Every one of those instances of any type of bigotry, any type of prejudice, any type of hate is coming from a stance, I am worthy, you are not. doesn't matter the conditions, doesn't matter the situation, whether it's religious, whether it's racial, ethnic, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's cultural, whether it's north-south, hot, cold, you don't like people who, are, who live in cold places, I don't know, what, however you want to cross the barriers, what you're ultimately saying is, I am worthy, you are not. This morning, I, uh, many of you know that I, I preach at First Baptist Church in the city of New York on Sunday mornings, and um, one of the things that is a little bit different than New Hope is the fact that it's in Manhattan, and so if someone's visiting and they Google Baptist churches in New York, New Hope doesn't pop up first. First Baptist Church pops up first. It's First Baptist pops up first, but it, it's so, so you get a lot of guests, and there were these there were these uh, uh, five who were staying in uh, downtown Manhattan and due to the, apparently there's a, a big race in Manhattan this morning and so they took a taxi because they didn't understand the train system. Point of the story is they got there after service. So they're trying to get to service but it just took too long and so uh, they're visiting from Nigeria and uh, if you're following the news lately, Nigeria is under great persecution, especially North Nigeria uh, religious persecution. I was reading an article yesterday on the way home uh, from London when I was on the plane about and since February there's been 120 Christians who have been martyred in Nigeria and 140 Christians' homes that have been destroyed just in the last month and a half. And they were here trying to, trying to basically get the UN to do something about it, Christians from Nigeria, but they wanted to worship with the church. And so I'm just talking to them, and although they weren't able to make worship, we gathered some leaders ar around we prayed for them, we encouraged them, and just had it, we, we intentionally said, hey, you've traveled a long ways, forgive us for the taxi system and the race in Manhattan, and you weren't able to worship with us, let's, let's have a little worship service. And we're able to come together and worship together and see what's going on. I give that as an example of just a reminder that whether it's an attack on those outside of the Christian faith, whether it's an attack from those on the outside in the Christian faith, whether it has nothing to do with religion at all and it's just uh, ethnic or racial, the point is, is if we are not careful, even as Christians, we come to a situation and we ask the question, who am I? And if our answer, the, the Christian faith is going to challenge this, that if our answer says in any capacity, I am better than 
this person. I am more worthy than this person. Then we miss the whole point of the Christian message because the Christian message is making it very clear is that all of us, from God's perspective and from Christ, when we rightfully answer who he is as a holy and loving God, then all of us are equally unworthy to be in his presence. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, if you keep the entire commandment, Old Testament, over 600 commandments, if you keep all of the commandments, if you keep everything that he tells you to do in Scripture, but you fail in one point, you're now guilty for all of them. What does that say? Is whether I've actually broken all of them or if I've just broken one of them, from man's perspectives, one's worse than the other, but from God's perspective, they're all the same. Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Together we have all turned aside. No one seeks after God. No one comprehends. Here's what I'm trying to tell you, is what Jesus is saying is he's challenging very implicitly. He's challenging to his hearers to ask the question, who are you? And the answer to the question, who am I, referring to Jesus, will greatly affect how you answer the question, who am I, referring to yourself. If we don't see Jesus for who he really is, then we will never see ourselves for who we really are. And if we don't see ourselves for who we really are, we will never worship Christ for who he really is. Let me say that again. If we don't see Jesus for who he really is, as the King, as Lord, Messiah, as the, as the one that no one is worthy to be in his presence, if we don't see Jesus for who he really is, then we can never accurately see ourselves for who we really are. The Pharisee wrongly saw who Jesus was and wrongly answered who he was. But the woman, the sinful woman, rightly saw who Jesus was, therefore rightly saw who she was as unworthy. But if we don't see ourselves for who we really are, if we don't see that we're unworthy, then we'll never actually worship Christ for who he really is. See the circular reasoning in this? If we rightly see who Jesus is, we'll rightly see that we are unworthy. And when we rightly see that we are unworthy, with the caveat, but he invites us into his presence, then we will rightly worship him when we're in his presence. This is precisely what the woman does. Now, think about it. She comes up and it says, standing behind him, weeping with tears, she began to wash his feet. Now, how did that happen? Um, I gotta sit, because we... Uh, there's not chairs, right? So reclining at the table, this is probably very much I'm sitting on the floor situation. So imagine Jesus is sitting on the floor, and if, if I'm sitting at a table, I'm going to sit kind of like this, right? And I'm probably going to sit and eat or prop up. Um, it, it, I'm trying to think, if he's sitting like this, she's behind him, she can't get to his feet. So clearly Jesus is probably sitting about like this, sitting and eating. And unbeknownst to him, this woman comes up behind says nothing to him, and just standing there weeping, just begins, I don't know if she just bends over, I don't know if she finally stops standing, the context doesn't really tell us, but just begins to wash his feet. She begins to wash his feet with her tears. She begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, her hair being uncovered, uh, period, but specifically within a, a Pharisee's presence or religious leader's presence, was disgraceful. She comes undone in this moment. She takes her tears in her humility, unworthy to be in this place. Now, she wasn't even invited, but she found out that he was there. And she, just imagine, once again, this is not Jesus' hometown, so he's a guest. 
So imagine this guest preacher is in town. You're the host, and you're like, ah, you know, I, I don't really know who he is. You're the Pharisee, so I'll invite him. But this other person, recognizing Jesus to be the Messiah, recognizing that she is unworthy to be in his presence, shows up at the house, doesn't say anything, just walks up behind him and begins to worship him by showing him honor. She began to worship him in the only way that she knew how. She had perfume. She had her tears. She had her hair. She, this is all she had. She took the things that probably allowed her to be successful in sin, her beauty, her hair, her perfume. She took those things that were used and seen as disgraceful, but in this moment in her humility, she falls down in brokenness and, and, and mercy and just begins to show him honor in the only way she knew how, which is to what? Clean his feet. Now, these feet hadn't been cleaned. These were dirty feet, remember? Because the Pharisee didn't show him honor. These were dirty feet. Tears, hair, begin to kiss feet. Now, that's disgusting. Let's just, that's, that's disgusting, right? Even if it's perfectly clean feet, that's still disgusting. This is not perfectly clean feet. She washed with, with her tears and her hair, right? Begin to just kiss and show honor and humility. Now, the normal custom wasn't to greet by kissing feet. The normal custom was to greet by giving a kiss on the cheek or something like that. But she was unworthy to just do anything but just touch his feet. She just began to weep and kiss his feet and just began to anoint him show him honor. What happened? She rightly saw who Jesus was, recognized her unworthiness and her sin, and then when she rightly recognized her unworthiness and her sin, she was now actually prepared to step in and worship Christ in a worthy way. What's the point? Is what makes us worthy is not us. What makes us worthy is the person of Jesus. See, because Jesus is the constant in the story. To the Pharisee and to this woman, Jesus is the same. He's represented as a moneylender who forgives sin. To both of them. The difference is one sees their sin not so great. The other sees it great. Therefore, the one who sees it great actually has the sin forgiven. When we think about this, our hearts, listen to me, because you're just like me. We're all unworthy, and we're all, hearts are deceitfully wicked and stubborn, our hearts want to say, we're worthy. Our hearts want to say, I'm worthy, therefore I can cast judgment on who Jesus is. But my challenge to you this evening is that Jesus is who he is, no matter what we think about him. If we believe him to be Messiah, he's still Messiah. If we say he's not Messiah, he's still Messiah. He is who he is, whether you say he is or not. And so my challenge to you is, would you see the, who Christ is? And if you go, I'm trying, but I just don't see it. Will you... I turn to him, and maybe the most humble thing you can do is go, God, I'm casting judgment on you, and I don't want to. Will you help me? Will you reveal to me who you are? Because it's not until we see him for who he is can we then rightfully see ourselves for who we are. Then it's not until we rightfully see ourselves for who we are can we rightly respond to him in worship. I'm going to invite Charles and the worship team to make their way back up, and and we're going to do things just a little bit different in this time together, meaning we're still going to just have a worship time, but I asked Charles to be prepared just to have an extended worship time. And I'm going to invite Pastor Andy to come on down, and Jay, if he'll come on down, and, and deacons maybe be prepared if necessary. But here's my encouragement to you, is that challenge of this text 
is for you to ask two questions. Who is Jesus to me? And with the careful answer is, who he is to you only helps you answer the second question, but actually doesn't actually determine who he is. Who he is is who he is. But you must make it important to answer the question for you. Who is Jesus to you? And then that answer will determine the answer to the second question, who am I? And I pray not in condemnation, but in humility, you would hear me say that I pray that every single one of us in here tonight would see we are the sinful woman. We are the one who has a debt that is so big that no one can forgive that debt except for Jesus alone. I pray that you would see that no matter from man's perspective, your sin may be better or worse, but from God's perspective, it's all unworthy. You are unworthy to be in his presence. But this is not, that statement is not a statement of condemnation, but it's a statement of honesty. And if you're able to recognize that, it's a statement of humility. And it's then and only then that you can properly respond in worship to Christ. See, because the Pharisee wrongly answered the questions, therefore did not worship Christ. The sinful woman rightfully answered the questions and then worshiped Christ. Let me read this last statement that I wrote down. Worship is a direct correspondence of our love and gratitude for the grace that has been shown to us. Our worship or lack of worship is an indictment on how we actually answer those questions. Meaning, if we in our hearts lack worship, then what our hearts are saying is we don't really understand grace, or at least in this moment, or we're not that grateful for it. Now, let me be careful. I said in your heart, because outward expression is not necessarily an honest statement of your heart. And so you may, just because... You, you, you're like myself who can't help but to move in worship. That doesn't necessarily mean my heart's rightfully answering these questions. This isn't a question with your hands or you're even with your mouth as much as a question with your heart. And would you see that worship is a direct correspondence of the love and gratitude that we have for Christ. And so here's what the invitation for you tonight is. One, if you're not a follower of Jesus, my encouragement to you, would you just put, just, would you just ask the Holy Spirit to help you see Jesus for who he is, that will automatically help you see you for who you are as someone who's unworthy to be in his presence. And would you respond in worship and gratitude to him? For the believers in the room, would you, hopefully, rightfully already so, knowing who Jesus is, would you be humbled and just reminded of the grace that has been shown to us and would you respond in worship? Generally speaking, those are your two challenges. Specifically, and here's what I want to do different, is the pastors, we're going to be available to you. And we understand that I hope, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you, he's convicting you of sin. I pray that maybe tonight you need to confess sin. Not necessarily to us, but if you can't, we're available if necessary. Confess sin to others, but ultimately confess sin to Christ. If you need prayer for any reason, we want to lock arms with you and pray with you. But we want to do this more. This isn't just specific to this message, but we want to do this more to communicate. We are here with you. The deacons, who is your deacon as a member, are here with you. You are not on your own. You are not expected to carry the burden that you're carrying on your own. We just want to pray with you. And so for any reason, 
whether it has anything to do with this message or not, if we can encourage you, love on you, and pray with you, I want to invite you just in this time of worship, just walk down front, and just we'll be glad to pray with you. If you don't feel led to do that, we're just going to spend some time, ask them to prepare at least two songs, or would we just respond in worship tonight? Would you stand with me, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to worship together. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. Jesus, we thank you for the reality that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. That you are who you are. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You're above all things. That you have been resurrected from the dead, Scripture tells us, and you are seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and powers and dominions. You are above all things. And this world is your footstool. That you are the King of kings. You are, you are on your throne. And we are unworthy to be in your presence. But you loved us so much that when we were the sinful woman, when we were the prostitute, when we had forsaken and rebelled against you and run far away from you, you stepped in, loved us, died for us, forgave us of our sin if we put our faith in you. You have forgiven our debt, making us worthy to be in your presence, not because of us, but because of you. And so tonight, no matter what is going on, no matter what's in our hearts, no matter what we're struggling with, Jesus, tonight, would you help us just worship you? Would you allow the scales to fall from our eyes to see our own sin? If there is a Pharisee heart in here, just like mine, we all struggle with it. Father, would you help us lay that at your feet? None of us want to be the Pharisee in here tonight who casts judgment on you and sits in pride and arrogance. We are unworthy. But let us in humility respond in worship. So Jesus, we give this time to you. Would you pour out your blessings? Would you pour out your grace? Would you hear our cries of worship as adoration and pleasing to you? Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.